Hey, let's go, let's go. Here we go, fold your heads, close your eyes, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Well, I'm surprised any of you came back. This is where we've been so far, right? So I basically said, you know, like your grandmother, go to church. Why should you go to church? God demands you should be holy. And what happens if you're not holy? You're going to die. That's how far we've gone now, okay? <laughs> now, the thing is, is I do have some consolation for you. This is the sort of thing that happens when you go to pastor school. I can't reveal the names, of course, because I have to keep such things secret. But I was visiting one of your members in a nursing home who was older, above 90. And that narrows the pool, but I think I can disguise it. So the nurses came to me and said, could you talk with him? I said, I could talk with him. I talk to him all the time. Could you talk with him? I said, what seems to be the problem? He said, he's intent on dating one of the nurses. <laughs> so I gathered my strength and went to his bedside and said, there's a range of problems here including your age and inappropriateness. He looked at me confused from his bed and said, come on, pastor, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Which, of course, then is the theme for today. You're not dead yet. So, uh, yes, this is where we've been. You should go to church. Why? Because go to, going to church is the answer to every question. And, of course, the initial question is, you know, what sort of person you ought to be. You're meant to be a person who's holy, which is very different from human morality. Like so many other things, we disguise our lives in lesser things, right? So people soothe their spiritual woes, for example, with all sorts of entertainments and addictions. But then they wake up one day and, you know, um, everything is still wrong. So you go to church because the church delivers holiness. That was the first thing we did. And you go to church because the church circumscribes your death. So, memento mori, right? The, the church circumscribes your death. And so, this advice that you think about your death, you know, in the morning, for example, when you wake up, and then you don't think about it anymore because it's been tamed. You're going to die. You're not dead yet. Now, what shall we do? And that brings us then to where we are today. So, just on this, uh, this beautiful bit from St. Catherine of Siena, all the way to heaven is heaven because Jesus says, I am the way. Now, I don't know if you think about your life in that way, but it would be good for you to think about your life in this way. All the way to heaven is heaven. So today, right now, in this place with these people, at the Holy Supper, in your life as you go home, with your family, and waking up tomorrow, this is heaven. All the way to heaven is heaven. And of course, the back end of this is um, the Viatorum, something for the way your last Holy Supper. At the point of death, uh, the pastor tries to catch you just before your last moment of consciousness to give you the Holy Supper, provisions for the way, the Viator. And so then, uh, and then anoint you, and then off you go to better things. But until now, unless the Lord chooses to kill you today, um, there's very, very much to do. So, uh, number one, we give death its due. And this is very important. No more, no less, right? So you put boundaries around your death. You're going to die, but you're not dead yet. You have to play those two things together. I'm going to die, but I'm not dead yet. 
So I'm going to die, now we put that aside, otherwise that'll take up every moment of my consciousness from now until then and basically ruin life. And so all the way to heaven becomes hell rather than all the way to heaven becomes heaven. I know I'll die, but I'm safe with Jesus, right? And so then we are, we have this, what we call, you know, big word, eschatological, apocalyptic, or end time sort of confidence. Why? Because I know how my story ends. I know, and we talked about this last week, that at my last breath, the angels will gather me and take me to heaven. It'll be fine. It'll actually be fun. It'll actually be better than this. And so now, you know, come what may, I'm in God's hands, and I can live in hope. And you remember last year, we talked about hope as welcoming the future. The ability to say, the future will be fine. Not because it will always be fun, not because it will always um, be painless, but it will be fine because it takes me to a place that is absolutely wonderful. It takes me before the face of God, and that then lasts forever. And so the things we've talked about in the past couple of weeks about how death is a friend or death is a threshold to a better thing, a more worthy thing, a fulfilling thing. And so we can live in hopefulness that no matter what happens, all the way to heaven is heaven. And you get this then all over the scriptures, but you know, one of the famous ones is 2 Peter 3. How do we live? What sort of persons aren't we to be? Hey, the Lord is coming back like a thief. The heavens will pass away. Everything's gonna get burned up. Um, but then this very interesting thing, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That might be the most terrifying part. That all you've ever said and done will be exposed. But you shouldn't worry too much because of course to be forgiven in Christ is to only have your holiness left. And so you'll be exposed for one who is completely holy. This is what it means to be ransomed or be redeemed. That you'll be exposed for one who is completely free. And you know, you'll be, you'll be waiting in a line like you wait for a chairlift at Aspen on your spring break, you know. The angels will take you up, it'll be fabulous, don't worry about a thing. But until then, you're not dead yet, what sort of persons ought you to be in holiness and godliness, right? So turn the page, number two. This is the kind of person you should be. There it is. Uh, I pray that you've seen this or one time in your life, you will see it. You go into St. Peter's, you immediately turn left, or turn right, you immediately turn right, and this will melt your soul, right? But you immediately say to me then, well, this is just more death. And of course it is, um, it is more death, but you know, hold on. Um, you know, the church is a little slippery because its stories intersect. For you who are musicians, let me who can fill you in later on this, but in jazz particularly, this thing called a blue note, right? A thing that's so every, every jazz bar, every third jazz bar is called the blue note lounge, right? Why is that? Well, besides the fact that you get a fabulous gin on the rocks, you can also, um, you know, make sense of life. A blue note is something that's slightly off, and then makes everything else on. Or it's slightly strange or slightly weird or doesn't fit the paradigm. And then suddenly, everything makes sense. Which of course is what, how we talk about the crucifixion. You know, is the crucifixion the most horrible thing that ever happened or the most beautiful thing that ever happened? And of course it's both, right? Depending on how you think about it. 
But I often try to make myself think about the crucifixion as the most beautiful thing that ever happened. Now you can stare at the uh, Pieta if you want. It's probably more fun than listen to what I'm going to say. But you know this famous story at 23, Michelangelo shows up in Rome for his first public commission. And this is beautiful, right? This is, this is the way of bureaucrats. You have one year, one block of marble, and one theme. Pieta, we'll be back. <laughs> and this actually, I don't have it written down here, but this is uh, supposedly almost this mystical experience that he has where he says, um, you know, the figures are inside the block of marble just trying to get out. Right, he's famous for having said this. My, my job is just to release the beauty that's already inside. They're, they're already there just trying to get out. So, you know, this has a, a few hundred years of history behind it. In Germany, it was perfected as a form, but it was very violent and gruesome. And it was meant for you to see Jesus. And you've seen uh, Isenheim altarpiece, for example, where Jesus, every inch of Jesus' body is covered with thorns or um, you know, you see these places where you, you go and, you know, Jesus is so, so um, destroyed, you can, you can barely, you know, take in the sight of it. So there's already this notion of, of Pieta earlier, but, you know, like all young geniuses, he's going to do it differently. And so his idea is to make a beautiful Jesus. And what he does in sort of the way of the Renaissance then coming out of this um, medieval time what he does is he creates the sorrow not by the violence, but through the pity, right? The pity of a mother who has lost a child. So you have this physical perfection of Christ, and uh, he, he, in this physical perfection, he shows this divine perfection. It is absolutely horrible, right? And Mary sits there and her face is a bit cast down. Now there are interesting things about it. Her face is very young. She seems younger than Jesus, but she's bigger than Jesus. If you look at him, she mothers him. She holds him dear. It's almost like Jesus at the manger on Christmas. And yet the story has finished now in this terrible, terrible way. And Jesus lies. They're not sort of beaten to a pulp this time but almost elegant in, and he, he's, if you look at it, he's very shiny and almost perfect. And she is, you know, kind of relegated to the backgrounds through the marvelous way that he cuts the rock into the folds of her garments and then also the kind of billows around her. And so Jesus retains prominence, but Mary is, you know, this wonderful, you know, source of his humanity. But for you, perhaps the most interesting thing, if you look at the way her hands are, on the one side, she has her hand to his side, her right hand is to the side. And interestingly, you know, these people are so clever, artists are so clever in so many ways. You notice that there's a bit of cloth between his, between her hand and his body in the way that when the priest holds up, um, a monstrance with a veil, he holds it with a, with a linen between his hand. and Je So there's this great confession of this is the body of Jesus. But you notice then, almost, if you're not paying attention, her other hand is open to you. And Jesus is 
tipping off her lap into yours. And this makes sense. This was done for a, car, a French cardinal had commissioned this. He commissioned it for his um, tomb. And it was meant for the altar at the tomb where the mass would be celebrated. And what you're meant to see is that in this horrible, horrible death, Jesus comes to you. And you're meant to see that Mary is pointing you toward offering you what will happen at the Holy Supper. She's offering you the body of her son. And that then is um, for your goodness, right? And this continues then the story of salvation, that Jesus moves from heaven to Mary's womb, right? To the cross, to the altar, and then he becomes yours. Unless you think that this is only um, some sort of Catholic thing, Luther had this famous saying uh, again and again, where do you find Jesus? On the altar, on the cross, on the arms of Mary. On the altar, on the cross, on the arms of Mary. Again and again, right? So it is horrible and it's beautiful. It's also excellent, and we need to come back to that. You know, you know me well enough to know that I think um, the church creates its own failings, primarily by, it's the Cain and Abel story, not bringing its best. The church's failings uh, will not be from false doctrine, the church's failings will ultimately be from selfishness, from miserliness. Because from the very first story where the Lord says, bring your best, you know, Cain doesn't and Abel does, and that creates murder and the world spins down to nothing. So we're ne we need to come back to that, but at least for today, and now I'll ring some bells from you who've been here forever, we want to think about a Eucharistic life, that is, a life that is given to thanksgiving. So you go to church, why? Because it answers all your questions. Why does it answer all your questions? Because it shows you the way to holiness. What will happen if I'm not holy? You're not holy, you will die, but you're not dead yet. And from now to then, what sort of persons ought we to be? Or to answer it a different, or ask it a different way, how does holiness manifest itself? And it manifests itself primarily in Eucharistia, in thanksgiving. It manifests itself that we are grateful for everything, even our suffering and even our death, because that will end in hope. Your death ends before the face of God forever. And time between now and then should not be wasted. That, you see, is the point. And the only way not to waste it is to live in thanksgiving or to live eucharistically or to live from what's slipping out of Mary's lap or from living from the altar, which is why the Eucharist is the center of life because the Eucharist is Christ. And it is the touch of Christ that heals you, right? If you want to see that, turn the page. Here's the story of Emmaus. Now, uh, it is a genius of a story. Uh, this is Easter night, and um, Jesus is out to let everybody know that things are A-OK. -okay. That very day, two of them were going. Life is a, So you read the story behind the story. They were going, which is life is a pilgrimage. The, made, the way is made by walking. You know, all the way to heaven is heaven, right? They were going 
to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were walking and talking, Jesus himself drew near. Classic Jesus move. Jesus always makes the first move. So you're troubled, everything's a wreck, you can't help but talk about it. When you're not crying about it, you're talking about it. And suddenly, Jesus draws near. Jesus makes the first move, Jesus comes to you. Jesus drew near and he went with them. Jesus joins himself to you in your sorrows, joins yourself to you in your life, joins yourself to you in your struggles. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and this is how it often is. I mean, Jesus is right in front of people, and they can't see him. Chief among the Eucharist, but in the mercy of other people who are kind to you, right? Or if you could only see all the times your guardian angel has kept you from horrible sin or even death. If you could only see it, but no, you can't see it because we're not tuned in enough to that. What are you talking about, says Jesus? And they stood still looking very sad. And one of them named Cleopas, which is very fascinating because Jesus has an uncle named Cleopas. So it's even a spicier story if this is his uncle who doesn't recognize him after he's been risen from the dead. That something happens to Jesus when he's lit up by the resurrection and while he is changed, as Paul says, we don't quite know what we will be. And so they don't quite know what he would be and they don't recognize him. And then he says to him, you know, as uncles often do, are you the village idiot? Like, are you the only guy in Jerusalem who got an F on this? You're the only guy who doesn't know, right? Are you the only one who doesn't know these things? And Jesus plays along, what things? What things, right? About Jesus of Nazareth, the man we thought was a prophet, but our chief priest delivered him to death and crucified him. Then verse 22, 21, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped he was the Messiah. We hoped he was the Christ. That's what we'd hoped for, and now our hopes are dashed. And immediately you think to yourself, and now my hopes are dashed. We could pause for a second, but you don't need 30 seconds to think about how your hopes have been dashed. If you're married, or you have a job, or you have kids, or you've lived in America, or pick this or pick that, your hopes have been dashed, especially in the last few years. Just in the normal. So how is it that your hopes can be dashed and St. Catherine can say, all the way to heaven is heaven. How do those two things fit together? Jesus the blue note, Jesus the pieta. Here we go. And it's been three days, and of course three days is a holy number of days. Moreover, we've got women who amaze us. They went early, they saw angels. Now that's interesting, people who couldn't see can suddenly see angels, that's fun. And they said he was alive, and that's interesting because he was pretty beat up and dead. And then they gave it a try, but him they did not see. This is progress on the way, right? The pilgrimage has started, baby steps. And he said to them, O foolish and slow, right? Isn't this the way the story is told? Wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer? Isn't this the way of glory, which of course is a synonym for holiness. Glory is the holiness of heaven when it comes to earth and gets revealed. That's the technical definition of glory. 
So he says, you know, the Christ, wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Wasn't it necessary that Jesus would open the way of holiness to heaven? Wasn't it important that this is done? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus opens his Bible and he explains the way of holiness. It's through Christ. So they drew near to a village and then he gave them a head fake and um, acted like he was going, but waited to see what they do. And they said, and this is, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful line from evening pray, stay with us, Lord, for it is evening and the day is far spent. Right? Could you, you know, couldn't you stay? You've had this with people that you love. You know, it's been a long day, but could, couldn't you stay just a little bit longer? And then when he was at the table, he took bread and blessed and broke and gave and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished, which is exactly what's going to happen to you at the Eucharist today. Watch what happens. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives and your eyes will be open, right? And so, you know, the touch point for when kids come to the Eucharist is, you know, you hold up a host and say, what's this? And if they say Wonder Bread, they're not ready. And if they say, oh, that's Jesus, it's time to commune them. Because they've learned to see, right? And then they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us? And the same, they went back to Jerusalem and they found everybody else and they said, hey, you saw angels, we saw Jesus, this is great, here we go, all the way to heaven is heaven. And they told them what happened and he was then known to them. You get to see the invisible becomes visible, the difficult becomes easy, and you get to see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And of course, this is what your life is meant to be. <laughs> Why should you go to church? Because Jesus answers all your questions here. Why should you go to church? Because Jesus makes you holy. Why should you go to church? Because you're going to die, but Jesus can save you from that. Why should you go to church? Because that's where Jesus has the Eucharist. And you can't get the Eucharist anywhere else. Why should you go to church? Because Jesus, despite your losses, can make you a person who can live in thanksgiving. Look at this next bit. In many ways, we are just like them. If there is any word that summarizes well our pain, it is the word loss. If this isn't America the last three years, I don't know what is. We have lost so much. Sometimes it seems like life is just one long series of losses. The losses that settle deeply into our heart are the loss of Intimacy, the loss of safety, the loss of innocence, the loss of friends, the loss of love, the loss of home, the loss of well-being, the loss of children, the loss of country, the loss of life. This is prophetic. Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from most of us. Maybe they belong to the world. But nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are part of everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. We had thought, we had thought so long of ourselves as successful, liked and deeply loved. We had hoped for a life of generosity, service and self-tire. We had planned to become forgiving and caring. 
We had a vision of ourselves as reconcilers and peacemakers, but somehow, and we aren't even sure how it happened, we lost our dream. I mean, this is unbelievable that this is written, you know, 20, 30 years ago. We became worrying, anxious people, clinging to the few things we had collected and exchanging with one another news of political, social, and ecclesiastical scandals of the day. It is this loss of spirit that is often hardest to acknowledge and most difficult to confess. It's a loss of spirit not to be able to say, we are ruined, not to be able to kneel down and confess and say, we are not holy. The best we can hope for is some version of moral, but nobody can decide on that either. Beyond all these things, there is the loss of faith, the loss of conviction that our life has meaning. No faith, no meaning. We're born, we live, we die, that's the end. And that's the best kind of the secular world can hope for now. Unfortunately, as the secular world lost whatever tint of Christianity it has, now the secular world has tilted toward power. And the new boss is just as bad as the old boss. And the new people in charge are as colonizing and as abusive and as deceitful as the people who were before them, and nothing has changed except the players. And yet the world tells itself it doesn't need to go to church. It's all fine. Really, is it all fine? Because almost everybody I bump into is some level of depressed or despair. As we grow old, we discover that what supported us for so many years, prayer and worship and sacraments and community life and the knowledge of God's guiding love, has lost its grip on us. He was our most intimate friend, my counselor and guide. He, he gave us comfort, courage, and confidence. We could feel him, taste, and touch him. And now, we no longer think about him very much. We no longer desire to spend time in his presence. Many of our friends laugh at him. They mock his name or simply ignore him. Gradually, we have come to the realization that for us, he has become a stranger. Somehow, we have lost him. Right? So we don't go to church because, you know, there's nothing there that can soothe and save us. But of course, the good news about strangers is they can become friends. And the good news about the unknown is it can become known. And the good thing about sinners is they can be forgiven. And the good thing about your life, if it's wrecked, is that it can be put back together again. It takes discipline. It takes practice. You've got to play along. Nobody else is going to live your life for you. It takes choices. And so you can see, you know, at point seven, all the names of Jesus that were present on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, the glory of God, comes to them. Jesus, friend of sinners, walks with them. Jesus, the rabbi, interprets the scriptures. Jesus, the good son, teaches them to pray. Jesus, the miracle worker, feeds them a divine Eucharist. Jesus, the healer, opens their eyes. Jesus, the Savior, warms their heart. Jesus, the risen one, gives them new hope. Jesus, the Lord of the church, sends them back out. Turn the page. This is what happens to you. So the church was built intentionally to be the road to Emmaus. Every liturgy is the road to Emmaus. The floor plan is the road to Emmaus. You're out here talking to each other, but the bell will ring and then Jesus will meet you. 
He's there on the cross. It's glorious, that cross, given in honor of a son, given by a son in honor of his mother. That's a glorious crucifix. And on that cross, Jesus meets you, and he walks with you, right? This is the road to Emmaus. You know, this is an early design. We didn't go back and, you know, make a, a design like this. There, you know some things that have changed. The rooms aren't there, and the font came back, and the Eucharistic tower turned into a chapel. Yeah, yeah, okay. But in general, look what happens to you. Jesus meets you, and he walks with you, and he lets you bring all your troubles your foolishness and your need for redemption and your sadness and your lost hope. And he walks forward. He gathers all the people together behind him in his train. He takes the lead. He speaks kindly. And then what does he do? He moves to the lectern where the scriptures are read. And then to the to pulpit and on a good day, they get interpreted, right? And the pastor says something about Jesus and not about himself. But that can always go wrong. So what happens then? We rally again around the creed and we say some prayers and we remember the history of the Passover and we say, lift up your hearts, pay attention. This is going to be great. Holy, holy, holy. And there's incense to clear the air, to mark territory. This is the Lord's space and the demons flee because they hate beautiful things. They hate excellent things. They hate redemptive things. And then what happens? Jesus takes and blesses and breaks and gives. And then they ring the bell. It's a doorbell. Jesus is here. Who's at the door? Jesus, right? That's the reason the bell rings. And it rings for when he's displayed, Jesus is here. And then to emphasize, Jesus is on the altar. And then to genuflect, we adore him because of how he loves us and what he's done for us. He comes, slipping off Mary's lap and coming back to life, and he's here for me, and he brings his body and blood, and he reveals himself so that I can see him again, and he joins me in my suffering, and he touches me in my unholiness, and he forgives me. And all of that is going on every Sunday just when you walk in the door. The building always wins, right? The building always wins. You should, you know, if you, see a, if you see an architect, you know, buy him a Starbucks. Because, the, you know, this is a building always wins. So, you know, you come to church this morning and what happens? I mean, I could do this for every part of the liturgy. You know, this, often there's a question about why does the liturgy, why is it constructed the way it is? Of course you can do whatever you want, right? And people do whatever they want all the time. That's not the question. The question is, what sort of people ought we to be so we amplify the holiness of God, particularly the crucified and risen Savior who's come to save me? And so all these pieces fit together to give you the confidence to choose to live in thanksgiving and to bring your best, to bring what is beautiful, not to be miserly, not to be shy, not to despair, even in the face of death. This is all brought to you, not just to die well, but also to live well. This is brought to you so that you can be Christ's companion on the way. Here, a proper liturgy is pure pastoral care. Why is the liturgy the way it is? Because every piece is meant to be pastoral care for you. 
It's meant to soothe your soul. So if confession, you know, you don't have to confess, but if you don't confess, look at what you miss. You kneel down and you say, I am broken and Jesus suffered for this. And if you don't confess, you need to carry those losses yourself. And that's a very heavy burden. So your choices are, you can carry everything you've ever done that is less than holy. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that Jesus will carry it for you and you can go free. And that happens when you walk by the font and you touch the water and you look down and you see there's three pieces of white stone and then one's telling you that God is three in one or when the same red rock that's in the eternal circle around the font is taken again and put around the altar so what is given in the font one time is nourished again and again at the altar, right? Or there's eight births because Easter is the eighth day or there's eight sides to the altar because, you know, that was the day that his uncle Cleopas met him again and everybody got all jazzed up. And of course in jazz it's a blue note, so, you know, now everything's gonna be okay. You see how this all fits together? It all works. So sort of at point 10 then, and this is what I would wish for you, right? The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. A Eucharistic life is one that is lived in gratitude. The story, which is also our story of the two friends walking to Emmaus, has shown that gratitude is not an obvious attitude toward life. If there's anything that describes America right now, it is that, that we are grateful for nothing and angry about everything. And the expectation is that things are horrible and spinning downward. The reason you come to church is because you can see things spinning up. Gratitude needs to be discovered and to be lived with great inner attentiveness. Go to church. Our losses, our experiences of rejection and abandonment, and our many moments of disillusionment keep pulling us into anger, bitterness, and resentment. When we simply let the facts speak, and everybody now is about letting the facts speak. Of course, nobody can decide what the facts are, but we'll marshal the ones that we like and we'll let them speak the language that we prefer. When we simply let the facts speak, there will always be enough facts to convince us that life, in the end, leads to nothing. And that every attempt to beat that fate is only a sign of profound naivete. You're stupid, which is kind of the you know, new moniker for Christians. People sort of pity you that you couldn't have done better on your Iowa basic skills. <laughs> Jesus gave us the Eucharist to enable us to choose gratitude. And so if you don't go to church, you don't get the Eucharist. If you don't get the Eucharist, you don't choose gratitude. Eucharistia, Thanksgiving. Tied also in the Greek, as you know, to kara, rejoicing in love. It's a choice we ourselves have to make. Nobody can make it for us. But the Eucharist prompts us to cry out to God for mercy, confession, to listen to the words of Jesus, three readings, to invite him into our home, the Lord be with you, to enter into communion with him, take eat my body, to proclaim the good news of the world. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's coming, the Lord's death until he comes again. It opens the possibility of gradually letting go to our many resentments and choosing to be grateful. It actually lets you be what the early church was. You can live as hopeful people 
in the middle of a murderous, immoral world that is in total despair. It's your choice. The Eucharistic celebration keeps inviting us to that attitude. In our daily lives, we have countless opportunities to be grateful instead of resentful. At first, we might recognize these opportunities. Before we fully realized it, we might have already said that life is too much for me. I have no choice but to be angry and let my anger show. Life isn't fair. I can't act like it is. However, there is always that voice that ever and again suggests that we are blinded by our own understanding and pull ourselves and each other into a hole. It is that voice that calls us foolish, the voice that asks us to have a completely new look at our lives and look not from below where we can count our losses, but from above. It invites us to see ourselves as God sees us, where God offers his glory. Eucharist, Thanksgiving, in the end, comes from above. You know, it comes from Mary's womb, and it moves onto her lap, and then onto the cross, and then onto her lap again, and then onto the altar. The Eucharist comes from above. It's a gift that cannot be fabricated by ourselves. It's to be received. This is the great Lutheran thing, right? It is freely offered and has to be freely received. That is where the choice is. We can choose to let the stranger continue his journey and so remain a stranger, but we can also invite him into our inner lives, let him touch every part of our being and then transform our resentments into gratitude. We don't have to do this. You're all free. We don't have to do this. In fact, most people don't, right? It's an illusion that the world was ever Christian or even America. But as often as we make that choice, Everything, even the most trivial things, become new. Our little lives become great, part of the mysterious work of God's salvation. Once that happens, nothing is accidental, casual, or futile anymore. Even the most insignificant event speaks the language of faith, hope, and above all, Pay attention, above all, love. That's the Eucharistic life, the life in which everything becomes a way of saying thank you to him who joined us on the road. All right, I love you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you next time.